This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. So I'm going through a unusual series. I will be the first one to admit it. Uh, and that is, it's called The Spiritual Biography of a Nation. But I'm in a sense uncovering our heritage as a nation, not just to teach history, that isn't my goal, but to remind us how God builds nations and therefore how he builds individuals. That's one strain of it. The other is how he built this nation very particularly because he built it on purpose and it has been used in a manner that is unprecedented throughout history for the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting how the enemy chooses to attack American history. I mean, you don't hear a lot of talk about Chinese history, Russian history. American history is a threat. And there, there was a big you know, article that I saw this morning on uh, why the pilgrims were bad guys. And it's like, I can, you can pick anything that is good, and I guarantee you there is an article about how it's bad. Anything. We could pick anything. And in other words, what you see is the devil wants to contort and to distort that which has been established as true. God is going to give his word to Adam. He's going to entrust him with very sound understanding of how to keep this garden. And the devil is going to come in and attempt to contort and distort. Are you sure God said that? Can you really be positive? You see, there is something God's hiding from you. And if you go my direction, you will find satisfaction that God would never allow you to have. You could be God yourself. It is a distortion, a contortion. It is a disturbance of the truth. And the enemy specializes in that. I am an American. And I love being an American. I really do. I love this country. And yet, I don't worship this country. I don't worship our heritage. I don't worship our constitution. I see that which is inspired and derived from the word of God as very important and critical in my development. And as I see it, it inspires me to live better. Sort of like the biography of Hudson Taylor. I don't worship that. I don't worship Hudson Taylor, but I sure am inspired by it. And I would prefer you not to erase Hudson Taylor from the history books because his life has greatly impacted mine. And so history has a benefit when it is wielded properly. We could also learn from the mistakes of history. I'm not against the fact that in our American history, we have problems and we have bad guys. We do. We have a lot of bad guys in American history. We have a lot of bad guys in America right now. And that doesn't mean that I throw out everything that America has been and will be because there's bad guys. I expect bad guys. In the church of Jesus Christ, get this, I know, brace yourselves for this one. If you have a seatbelt, you might want to buckle it right now. In the church of Jesus Christ right now, there are bad guys. Isn't that a terrible thought? And yet that's what Paul actually declares to us, that there are wolves in sheep's clothing. 
The enemy will come in as an angel of light. So even trying to replicate that which is light, he will attempt to get in that way. This is the simple facts of the matter. There is good and evil. There is light and dark. There is life and death. There are twos. And these twos are at enmity one with the other. And even inside of you, you carry the same template. You have flesh and spirit. And the two are antagonizing to one another. And what we know is that when a man or a woman gives themselves to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit triumphs over that flesh, over that opposite, so that they can live triumphantly, victoriously in these bodies, in this world. But in this world, we have that tension as well. So we as Christians understand this. This is just what the Bible explains. So how this unfolds for us in whether it's the course of nations or whether it's the course of our own life, we need to recognize that there is difficulty that awaits us. The name of this is choosing difficulty. For us, if we look at the word difficulty, uh, we have a negative connotation to it. Okay, we, we just do. And so if I were to say, do you want difficulty or ease? And I was to set it out before you and you all had a private ballot. And then you're going to send up your, your responses to me. I can see some of you going, wait a minute, wait, are you going to read these out loud, Eric? It's private, right? So we wouldn't know. But wouldn't it be weird if every single one of us selected difficulty? And wouldn't that be shocking? However, after this message, I'm actually hoping that you recognize and have the soundness of mind that the Holy Spirit gives to recognize that difficulty is not your enemy. Difficulty is not a bad course of direction. Difficulty is actually the course of the Christian. You guys remember Pilgrim's Progress? Remember John Bunyan attempting to articulate this? You have a broad way that goes off one direction, then you have this narrow way. And where does it go up? It goes up the hill, difficulty. And so that which is at the advent, when you come to the cross and you see the beauties and the glories of Jesus Christ, what you head out on is a grand journey up the hill of difficulty. And that is the only way to make it. And so when we fight against that and when we are repulsed by difficulty, what we find is that we are very attracted to a broad way. And that way leads to death. And so as a result, we find ourselves inclined towards death, even though we've just been set free by life itself. As a result, it's a choosing and appraising of the value of difficulty in our life. I, I've used different words for it over the years because I've spoken on this many times. And every time I speak on it, it's for my own soul too. I have to freshly recalibrate my thinking around what the word of God says instead of what Eric feels. Because I... I have a repulsion to difficulty. I want ease and comfort. Eric, do you want a pile of cash or do you want a whole pile of bills and debt? (laughs) Of course I want the pile of cash. Why do you even ask? Every single one of us wants ease and comfort, naturally speaking. We aim towards it. We do not aim towards difficulty. How about this word? Inconvenience. No, no. No, no, we are a convenient society. We make inventions to make things more convenient. We don't actually choose inconvenience. Yeah. Most of the things that you will find in your life when you obey God and heed his spirit, what do they bring into your life? Inconvenience. That's just a matter of fact. 
to go up to someone and share the gospel is somewhat inconvenient to your comfort zone. I mean, you were sipping your, your latte before God said, talk to them. And you were you know, reading a book before God said, talk with them. So you compare sipping your latte and reading a book to going up into the, the uncomfortable zone and actually asking someone about their soul condition. And which one are we going to naturally resonate with? We're going to resonate with the latte and the book, not with the asking someone their soul condition, because hazards are there. Now, they could just fall to pieces and go, I was praying right now that someone would come up to me and introduce me to Jesus. We're like, oh, praise God, thank you, that this isn't as hard as it could have been. However, for those of us that have interacted with souls, we know that that is one in, well, I was going to say one in 20, <laughs> one in 50, one in 100. I mean, it's not very common, okay, that people just melt before the love of Jesus. It's oftentimes a hazard. And as a result, we tend to gravitate away from that difficulty or that inconvenience. Now imagine that they give their life to Jesus. Well, what are you going to tell them now? Go be warm and well-fed. You can figure it out. Go find a church. What if you know that there aren't a lot of good churches for them to receive discipleship in? What does that mean? Now you have inconvenience because you're like, well, okay, I'll follow up with you tomorrow. We could get together. Well, that, when you just had your latte in your book, you didn't have any of that. Now you have consequence for your obedience. All of these things create hazards. Welcome to the kingdom of God. Instead of grumbling about that, we embrace that. It's when we grumble that we miss how God works. When we focus on self, it deteriorates our soul. But when we focus on the king and what the king's agenda is in this earth, we thrive. So choosing difficulty. Isn't this interesting? Because this is about American history. I'm going to go through American history and recognize that our history hinges where we are as a nation in its healthiest state. Okay, right now isn't very healthy. But where we've come and what made for this greatest missionary sending nation of history actually comes from this story right here. The one I'm finally arriving at. I've been going through all sorts of stuff, just sort of longing to get to this point. And what's funny is I'm only going to touch the surface or like stick my toe in it. There's so much depth to each of these things. And my goal is not to just teach history. Like I said, it's to actually introduce you to how God works in nations and in individual lives. So I'm going to give you a defining quote from American history. I'm not going to tell you who gave this quote until a little later. Okay. And so I'll, I'll give you some puzzle pieces and then we'll put it together. All great and honorable actions are accompanied with great difficulties and must be enterprised and overcome with answerable courages. It was granted that the dangers were great, but not desperate. And the difficulties were many, but not invincible. Christian history right there. It's also one of the most crucial statements and decisions. A decision is going to be made in American history. It's going to define the course of this nation. And it involves tremendous hazards. It involves tremendous difficulties. And yet, the guy writing this is part of a group. And they are going to make a decision. And I'm going to read this for you again. I want this to soak in at a certain level. All great and honorable actions are accompanied with great difficulties and must be enterprised and overcome with answerable courages. It was granted that the dangers were great, but not desperate. And the difficulties were many, but not invincible. Standing for Jesus Christ right now, 
the dangers could be getting greater. I, to call them great always makes us feel a little awkward knowing that other people have far greater challenges in the world, right? But they're becoming greater. And, but they're not desperate. And the difficulties, there are many, but they're not invincible. And no matter how grave it gets, the same thing will be true. At every juncture, yeah, the dangers are great. But they're not desperate. And difficulties are many, but they're not invincible. This is how the Christian has to reason. We, may, we appraise the situation. Well, yeah, that actually could lead to prison. Yeah, that could lo- lead to the loss of this or this. Sure. But our God is greater. So the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter four twelve through 13 says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Many of us think that some strange thing is happening to us when we face fiery trials. Our American version of Christianity, I could just say North American version of Christianity, has altered because ironically, this is part of the foundations of American history is recognizing that with great movements towards truth and towards righteousness, towards honor and justice are going to come great difficulties. With every step in the direction of righteousness is going to come a counterattack. You do know that, right? And so Peter is saying, do not consider it strange when you get that counterattack. When you face a trial, why, why would you consider that strange? If this is a noble venture, if this is an honorable venture in the direction of Christ's glory, expect it. So when you expect it, you're not caught off guard by it. In fact, you're able to rejoice all the way through it. You know when most of us are caught off guard is when we're not expecting the difficulty. If you had a test tomorrow, you would probably be prepping for it today, Right? And so by the time you get to tomorrow, if you're well studied, you do not fear the test. In fact, you get a smile and you can't wait to show that you can do well on the test. You know all the answers. You ever had it where you really know a topic and someone has flashcards for you? Like, no, do it again. Do it again. Why do you want to go through the flashcards again? I mean, isn't that a form of torture? I mean, that's school. If you know the answers, you love to show that you know the answers. If you don't know the answers, you really don't like those flashcards. Stinky flashcards. Why? Because they expose your lack of readiness. If you have readiness, you do not fear trial. You do not fear testing because you are ready for the testing. I would say one of the reasons the church of Jesus Christ in America does not like testing and trials is we are not ready for the testing and the trials. We don't think they should be a part of our schooling as Christians. Schooling shouldn't involve testing and trials. We just do essays. We don't like any of this. We should just be able to have a good attitude in, our, in the schoolroom and everything should be fine. If we just show up for class, how about we get an A? Why do we need to have testing? Testing. Yuck. And yet, that very testing is critical to our development. Here's Jesus Christ in Matthew seven thirteen through 14. You guys will recognize this. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. 
Few want to go the narrow way. Narrow in this, in the Greek, is actually a word that is going to describe great, great difficulty and challenge. This is a way of great suffering. Well, who wants to find that? Or who's looking to find that? No one. So few are those who find it. Well, how many are out there looking for that? Could someone show me the narrow way, you know, the way of great compression and difficulty? That's over here. Uh, yeah, I don't see that. All I see is the Broadway. You see, the Broadway, many find the Broadway. Few find the narrow way. If I were to, once again, divide this into twos, you have broad and you have narrow, which way do you want to choose? If I gave you the private ballot right now and you could choose broad or narrow, of course, you know the right answer. But I want you to start exercising that dimension of you which genuinely chooses what God says is best. Which is best, the broad way or the narrow way? I don't care what your natural man craves and wants. I say, which one is actually going to lead to life? When you start agreeing with God, you're going to say, I choose the narrow way with all its consequences, with all its challenges, with the hill difficulty right up ahead. I choose that. We deliberately in our soul choose difficulty. The two options. So now we're going to American history. American history is all going to unfold in the age of discovery. So 1492, Columbus is going to sail the ocean blue. Then in the 1500s, in the early 1600s, this whole period is an age of discovery. I mean, a lot of our continent has not even been discovered yet. I mean, it's just an extraordinary thought. Just imagine how fun this was, right? And yet there's two directions. Just like in all these other things, there's two directions. You have south and you have north. And that's going to play into our story today. You have south, which is rather luxurious, guys. I mean, the fruit just grows on the trees and falls into your hand. There's no work needed in the south. And guess what? They have gold everywhere in the south. I mean, okay, can, can you get the hint of which direction we should go? And then you have the north, which the Spanish called God-forsaken territory. It didn't have any gold in it. Why would you go there? And so what you're going to see, as I've described in the previous sessions, is who's going to go there are the missionaries, because there's lost souls there. They may not, may not be lost gold there, but there's lost souls there. And so what you're going to see inhabit the north are missionaries. And this is a dark territory. North America is a dark, dark territory. In fact, most people in Europe are going to say, with the stories coming back of the descriptions of the natives in this country... That this is literally the most hostile, dark, and savage territory in the world. And that's where we live right now. Isn't that a weird thought that we live in what would have been described as the most hostile, dark, fearful, lawless place on earth? It's also interesting. I mentioned this in a previous episode. But the ancient spirits that are used to living here and dwelling here are fear and lawlessness. They're used to being here. They're used to being the big boy on the block. When Christianity came to this country, it kicked them out. And so you can see their movement back in. They're familiar. They're used to ruling the roost around here. And they don't like it too much what has happened in this country. So I get it. I get it. But this is a spiritual battle that we're dealing with, guys. So two options, south and north. Two motives, gold and God. And what you're going to see is South America is going to be defined by this greed. 
and this violence. North America, in its inception, is going to have problems. There's going to be issues, and I could go into those. However, in a general sense, it is going to be defined by a pursuit of God and a desire to share the light of Christ with this continent. It's fascinating, the distinction between the North and the South in this. The two approaches to the New World, there's going to be different groups. We have France, we have Spain, and we have Great Britain that are going to be involved in trying to colonize and settle. And they're all against each other. They're trying to kick each other out. They're, trying, they're capturing each other's ships. And, I mean, it's a, it's a time of lawlessness in regards to nations. In other words, there's not a, lot, there's not a league of nations that is helping you know, arbitrate between these. It's like, hey, strongest uh, man, last man standing, that's, that's what matters. Great Britain, as we know, is going to end up winning this overall battle. And then they're going to have a fight with the colonists that were left behind, which... It's basically us, okay? That's the nation that we know. The United States of America is going to thumb their nose at Great Britain, and we're going to have our independence. But France had to be kicked out. Spain had to be kicked out. I mean, this is, this is quite the thing. There's, there's different motives behind this. You have missionaries that are coming over that are designed, desiring to build mission stations so that they could have a witness to the native people, and they could shine the light of Christ. But then there's governments that are literally trying to come over here and build empires. Which one's going to win out? That's what's interesting here. Is you're going to actually see these two in constant contention in the age of discovery. You're going to see flesh and spirit. You're going to see that though the enemy has an agenda for this territory. God has an agenda for this territory. Who's going to win? So the Virginia Charter is going to start something, and that's the work of Great Britain in this new territory. Great Britain is very slow to the table. I mean, the Spanish are sending over Columbus in 1492. So this is 1606 that Great Britain finally, you know, gets involved in this thing, and they establish the Virginia Charter. Now, things happened before this. We have Roanoke. We had disasters for for the British in this. But this is like the first big move that they're going to have. And they have these partners that come in, and that's called uh, the Virginia Company. And so that's going to establish what we know as the Jamestown Settlement. And so when I gave my last message in this series, that's in 1607. I talked about the uh, gentleman Christianity and the disaster that Jamestown is. I'm not a fan of Jamestown. I, if you want to talk about a blemish on the history of our country, Jamestown would be a good example of it. It's a whole bunch of self-centered, egotistical gentlemen that come over and don't want to get any dirt beneath their fingernails. But how are you supposed to work the ground unless you work? How are you supposed to get a crop unless you break a sweat? They don't want to break a sweat. They're gentlemen. They've never worked a day in their life. This is an absolute disaster in the making, okay? Listen to this quote 20 years would pass before the Virginia colony would finally plant a crop large enough to sustain itself. They have a whole starving season. It's actually what it's called, the starving season, where they are going to literally lose 50% of their uh, colonists because they're not working and they can't feed themselves. I mean, some of the most horrible atrocities are going to take place in Jamestown under the banner of bringing the light of Christ to the nations. That's why it's, it's extra difficult for me to look at Jamestown, is their whole charter is really good. If you look at their charter, it's like, oh, go, Jamestown. Jamestown had no interest in sharing the light of Christ, none whatsoever. It was a business deal. 
they gave that little overture to make everyone else feel very good about it, that it was a very noble venture. It was a self-seeking venture. Okay, so this is a disaster in, in Jamestown. So meanwhile, back in England, while all this is taking place, something is happening. See, in 1519, we have the Protestant Reformation. So at the same time you have this age of discovery, you have God, in a sense, awakening his church. And you have this call to missions, not just in the Protestants, but also in the Catholics. You have people that have been sitting on their duff in monasteries for centuries in the Dark Ages that are like, I don't think we should remain on our duff. I mean, isn't that brilliant? They're reading the scriptures like, I think we're actually supposed to go into all the world and preach the gospel. <laughs> and so it is an explosion of interest in missions right at this exact time. And so we have this new continent with a whole bunch of lost souls. And so you're going to see the Franciscans. You're going to see the Jesuits in New France. You're going to see the Huguenots, the French Huguenots that come over that are they're Protestant. And then you're going to see something begin to happen in Great Britain as well, which is going to define the course of American history. So we're going to call this the awakening of the active Christian. All these people would have called themselves Christians. All of them. They come from the good Anglican tradition of the Church of England, and they have their liturgy. And what's interesting is they believe something in their head, but they don't live it in their life, and they don't care about the contradiction. And so what you're going to see in and amongst the Anglicans that are over in Jamestown is if you were studying them, you'd be so disgusted with what they're calling Christianity. I mean, it's disgusting. It's everything that we despise have happening in the church today. It's like, no, no, no. If you're going to say it, you need to live it. Oh, what? you can't say that and then behave this way. You have to choose. Are you in or are you out? You see, this is exactly what's happening in England at this time. The church of England is gone rotten. And that's what's over in Jamestown right now. Okay, that's the Church of England and their expression of the light of Christ. It's a disaster. And so you have this awakening. And two groups are going to be stirred that are going to be very defined in history. You have a group called the Puritans. And you have a group called the Separatists. And these two groups are the only distinction between them because they both agree. We have to return to the word of God. We have to lift high Jesus Christ. We need to live this. We can't just talk it. We can't just think it. We need to animate this thing called Christianity. We're like, amen. I like what's going on with the Puritans and the separatists. This is good stuff. So meanwhile, back in England, Queen Elizabeth is go the first is going to die in 1603. So she is called the Virgin Queen. Virginia is going to be named after her. She was the one that sent Sir Walter Raleigh, all the, the grand adventures that were taking place, the grand destruction of Roanoke, all this is under her leadership. And so at that point, really nothing had really happened, but they're going to still name Virginia after her, right? So that's where you get the term, the name Virginia in the first place. King James I is going to take the throne. So 1603 to 1625 is going to be a season of intense awakened persecution to this group, Puritans and separatists. However, the Puritans were not the first on the list to persecute. When the bishops finally get James I enthroned, James I is, a, is passive. He's not really an aggressive guy, and so he allows the bishops to do whatever they think is best to get the church correct again. And they have two factions that are creating problems. The Puritans their desire is to stay within the church system and change it from within. 
John Bunyan, who's going to be born in 1626, is actually going to be a Puritan. He's going to desire to change it from within. Obviously, he's going to end up in prison as well, right? The persecution is going to spread beyond the separatists to the Puritans, but it's going to start with the separatists. The separatists feel that the Church of England has gone off. And as a result, they are going to start the church. (laughs) And it's not going to be the Church of England. It's going to be the Church of Jesus Christ. They're not going to even listen to that church, which is under the king. The king is, and and the separatists say, we have one king and his name is Jesus. We're not going to submit to King James as if he's over the church. You've got to be kidding. And as if King James has final authority over all the things that happen in the church? No way. And so you have the separatists. Ironically, these are some of the same issues we're dealing with today. The Puritans and the separatists, if you were to break down the church right now, you have two strains within the serious-minded Christians. Of course, you have the Church of England Christians, which are like, what? What's the big deal? Burp, scratch. And they're just living their way in this destitute, depraved church system, right? And then you have those that are like, this isn't right. But then you have those that say, we need to keep a respect to the governors and we need to do whatever is right. You know, they're the ones that gave us the rights to do this in the first place. Let's just live godly according to Romans 13. And then you have the separatists that are like, you know what Peter and John did? They actually said it's better to obey God than man. And I don't care if God put them over us. They're asking us to defile our conscience. So we say, no, you've got the same issues today, right? And this is the same issues back in the early 1600s. So the Church of England now begins its great purge. I mean, this is going to get to the point where in 1618, there's going to be an edict from King James, which is going to actually declare that everyone that is not a part of the Church of England has to leave the country. They have to literally leave the country. If you're not a part of this, if you don't acknowledge this, if you don't bend your knee to this, you're out. Or you die. You choose. I mean, we can make it harder for you. So this is literally how bad it's getting, okay? What this is going to lead to, ironically, is Haman is going to hang on his own cross. We're going to see that this persecution is going to lead to the spread of Christianity into our country because where do you think these guys are going to end up? They're going to end up, you know, that version of Christianity, where is it going to go? It's actually coming here. (laughs) This is one of the reasons this country is going to sponsor such strength is all of that awakening the spirit of God is doing doesn't have a homeland and it's going to end up looking for a homeland. It's going to start with Holland and Holland will receive them and nothing's easy in Holland and we still aren't able to practice and function because we're working 15 hours a day to make it. And so that's what I'm going to walk through here. Some of you are guessing at what I'm going after, but I'm going to keep it slow. Even keel. So in England, they had fanatics. These are the two groups of fanatics. That's what they were called, fanatics. That was not a compliment, by the way. Now, today we could have fanatics, and eh, it's still probably not a compliment. But it's not as bad of a word as it was back then. It was a reprehensible word if you were called a fanatic back then. So we had the Puritans and the separatists. And I've explained them well enough that we can move on. Now, I'm going to give you two keys to unlocking this country. Two things that are going to best explain our form of government And the reason we have strength in our educational system in this country, the reason we had such a heritage of strength, which is going to lead to what we would understand as the Constitutional Convention and the establishment of states and statehood, all of these things. The reason we are going to have this is because of two keys, the Puritans and the Separatists. 
I mean, right there, in a nutshell, I could just say it that way. The reason this country is going to have such strength is because of these two groups. Yet these are the fanatics in England. The separatists. So the separatists are the ones that, remember, they can't submit to King James I. He's asking them to, to go against their conscience, to go against the word of God. They cannot do it. So as a result, they're going to begin meeting separately. Outside the Church of England, and this is unprecedented in England, that they're going to have a church gathering outside of the official church? Uh, excuse me, but you're not allowed to do that. What's funny is for all of us, we can't even conceive of a state-run church. It doesn't even make sense to us, but that's all there was back then. And so as a result, this is a huge step for the separatists to say, we're actually separating and we're going to meet in our homes. We're going to meet in private locations and we're going to do this according to the word of God. We believe that Jesus is over his church and we believe that the word of God in text actually leads us as the body of Christ. So they're going to also be called in history, the Lydonites. And that comes from the fact that they are going to end up leaving uh, England and moving to Holland. And you're going to notice the final description of them is something that we're more familiar with. And that is the pilgrims. These are the ones that's ultimately going to be the name that goes down in history. I don't know that many of you call them the separatists or many of you call them the Leidenites, but those are actually names for them as they were going through this because they lived in Leiden, Leiden, Scotland, Leiden, Holland. And so as a result, they were the Leidenites. That's where they all were converging on. So all of these were, would go across the English channel and, and head into Holland and they lived in Leiden. It was not a very easy season for them. Uh, so Peter Marshall, the historian, is going to say, if allowed to continue, this is the mentality of the Church of England. If allowed to continue, these separatists would soon reduce worship to primitive preaching, teaching, singing, and free praying, thus doing away with 16 centuries of established liturgical tradition. Isn't that funny the way we hear that? We're like, so I could have established liturgical <laughs> tradition or I could have primitive preaching, teaching, singing, and free praying. Which one are you going to choose? Well, guess who established our country? So there's a reason why we think the way we do and we function the way we do. People can you know, say, well, American Christianity is just traditional. I'm not going to argue that, but I would still choose our tradition over <laughs> 16 centuries of liturgical tradition. In other words, we are familiar with freedom in worship and in preaching. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it's just like a completely different worldview than they had back then. So William Bradford in his on Plymouth plantation, he's going to have a memoir that he's going to write about Plymouth plantation. And uh, this is one of the things he said, and he's referring back to England in this time period and England in general. It is well known under the godly and judicious. However, However, since the first breaking out of the light of the gospel in our honorable nation of England, what wars and oppositions ever since Satan has raised, maintained, and continued against the saints. This is how he describes the saints. Listen to this. I.e., believers who were striving to yield their whole lives to Christ. Sometimes by bloody death and cruel torments, otherwise imprisonments, banishments, and other hard usages, as being loath that his kingdom should go down, the truth prevail, and the churches of God revert to their ancient purity and recover their primitive order, liberty, and beauty. So what Bradford is saying is, ever since the gospel arrived in England, Satan has had it in to destroy it. 
And he has used every means possible to try and get this out of this country. And so that's what Bradford is recalling. It's, it's weird to think about that, but that's, that's our heritage here. If we could say the same thing about American history, ironically, most of us don't know it, how many people have died, martyrs died as missionaries, coming and bringing the light of Jesus to the Indians. We don't know that part. That's not the part that we ever study. So we don't recognize how fierce the battle was over the truth in this country. William Bradford uh, was given, he, first, first of all, William Bradford, a key guy, he's going to be the governor of, of Plymouth in the years to come, uh, Plymouth Plantation, but he is, he's an orphan, uh, basically from birth, and he's going to be raised by relatives, so all he has are his relatives. So that's just, and this is at the age, I want to say he was 14 when he is going to declare this, okay? He is, he, re, he removes himself from the Church of England, which was unheard of, and his family basically declares that they will disown him unless he repents and comes back. And this is his response, I believe at the age of 14. To part from your company will be as great a cross as can befall me. Nevertheless, to keep a good conscience and walk in such a way as God has prescribed in his word is a thing which I must prefer, prefer before you all and above life itself. Hmm. We could use a few more 14-year-olds with that mentality. So Peter Marshall is also going to describe how they were treated, the separatists. The separatists were hounded, bullied, forced to pay assessments to the Church of England, clapped into prison on trumped-up charges, and driven underground. They met in private homes, to which they came at staggered intervals by different routes, because they were constantly being spied upon. In the Midlands village of Scrooby, the persecution became so intense that the congregation elected to follow other separatists who had already sought religious asylum in Holland. So they're in Holland, these separatists all gather in Holland and Leiden, and they're going to have a very difficult time, which I'll go through in just a second. And they're going to decide to leave. They recognize that they need to do something. They cannot just continue like this. It is extremely hard on them. One of the ways that they would describe it in Brad, Bradford's memoirs is, he's, is he literally says that they are, the adults are aging so fast because they're working 15 hours a day just to scrimp their way through. The children are having to labor to help their families. And as a result, because of the intense labor, the children are looking to the world that doesn't have to labor like them. And they're, they're attracted to the world. And they, some of them are signing up for the military. They just want to get out of this community because it's just a community of hard work. That's all it is. I mean, dawn till dusk, they have no, because they're getting pennies for their work. Holland will allow them in, but they won't give them any good jobs. So they're the menial laborers in the communities and they have very little work opportunities. And so if they get it, they have to work so many hours just to get enough food to feed their families. And so they're, they're coming to this place as a community where they're like, we need to do something, but what can we do? Well, what other country can receive us? So there's this new world that has been discovered. And, well, I'll go through it. There are four re William Bradford's four reasons to leave Leiden. Their life was so hard that no, other, no others from England were joining them even after the edict of 1618. So 1618 says, you're not allowed to stay in this country if you are a separatist anymore, right? So guess what? No one's coming to Leiden, Holland <laughs> with them. Why? It's too hard. 
life is too, they'll find another spot. They're not going to go there to join these guys. They, they, I mean, they can't stay in England, but they're not going there. And so they recognize it's like, this isn't a good setup here. We're trying to build strength in the church and no one will even join us because our life is so hard here. They weren't complaining about it, by the way. Even historians will acknowledge the attitude that they had was one of rejoicing, even though it was difficult, but they recognized there were consequences to this continued difficulty. Number two, they were aging prematurely, 15-hour workdays. Number three, their children were worn down by the extreme labor and being enticed by the world's ease. And finally, four, they possessed a missionary call to carry the light of Christ to the nations. This entire group felt called to share Jesus, but they were working all day long, every day, in the fields. They didn't have any opportunities to be missionaries. And they all felt a common bond on that point that they need to share Jesus with the world. And so you're going to see the four reasons line up. And what that's going to lead to is the decision. We need to go. All right. Where are we going to go? They decide to go to the new world. But there's two dimensions to the new world. You got a south and you have a north. See, I've been baiting baiting uh, you guys for this the whole time. South or north? So say you're in Leiden, Holland, which way are you going to go? I mean, you just want, I mean, you're out of England. Okay. That's your homeland. That's hard enough. Now you're in Holland, which is a pleasant place. I mean, as far as, you know, uh, atmosphere and beauty, it's beautiful. However, you're killing yourself to survive and you recognize you're losing your kids in the process. We have to leave. And you even feel led by God. And this is, this is something that they prayed about for a long stretch of time and waited on God very specifically to get leading. And now they know they're supposed to leave, but now are they supposed to go south or north? I want to walk you through the reasoning points. There are some serious arguments for them to go to South America, to Guyana. Okay, It was actually the premier spot that I would say a, a portion of the pilgrims actually said, this is the spot we should go to. Listen to Sir Walter Raleigh's description of this area in South America. It is rich, fruitful, and blessed with a perpetual spring and flourishing greens where vigorous nature brought forth all things in abundance and plenty without any great labor or art of man. Oh, that sounds nice. This is literally staring in the face. They have that quote from Walter Raleigh and they know, can you even imagine them bringing this up in a discussion? It's like, look what Sir Walter Raleigh says about this territory. Now I'll go on and give you something else. The arguments for the South, there is gold there in abundance. So there's gold and you don't even need to work. I mean, what do you think their bait is right now? They're working 15 hours a day. And if they just go to South America, I mean, fruit will just fall on their chest and they could just start gnawing on it. They could just take a break for a long stretch of time. I mean, this just sounds good. Okay. Now, I don't know how you guys are doing internally right now. If you're in Leiden, Holland, and you know, you need to leave the South is looking pretty good. You have to admit. The arguments against the North. You notice that there's really no arguments for the North. (laughs) It's only arguments for the South and arguments against the North. What are the arguments against the North? The Jamestown starving time was fresh in their memories. At this point, 50% of all English people that come over to Jamestown will die in the first year. 50%. That's not a good statistic. Could you imagine... Okay, we have South America. <laughs> I mean, it's lush, it's green, it's a perpetual spring. Gold is there. You just sort of picture it just laying on the surface. They just pick it up. It's like, gold, I found gold. 
course, we know that's not exactly how it works, but this is how they're envisioned, this romanticism of South America. And then you have the North, and what are they getting reports of? The starving season, where literally the entire colony is starving. They cannot seem to make it work. Of course, there are a whole bunch of gentlemen that don't know how to work and won't work. There are reasons for this. In a sense, they're under God's judgment, if you want my opinion on it, because they come under the banner of Christ and are literally living for the flesh. And they want everyone else to do the work for them. If they don't have the food, what will they do? They'll raid the Native American uh, crop and take it for themselves. That's how they've been surviving. Let the Indians work for them and then they'll steal it. Okay, now how can God bless that? As far as I'm concerned, it's despicable, right? So they're getting all these reports back. The starving season. The Indians, and this is true, okay, this isn't made up, but the Indians were savage and ready to destroy all newcomers. Well, do you blame them after, after some of the newcomers that have come over there? I wouldn't blame them. We got some newcomers up here. Let's take them out. I mean, that makes sense to me if I was an Indian and this was my territory. The survival rate of all Jamestown settlers was at that time 50%. That's a rough thing to make a decision on. You have the South and you have the North. So they lay it before God. But what does God say? Now, I gave you a quote at the very, very beginning of this. Now, I'm going to now lead into that quote, and you recognize their decision. They are going to land on the fact that they feel that God is leading them to the north. All those difficulties staring them in the face, God is leading them into the area of difficulty. This is where they are needed. God wants to shine a light in this territory that we know as North America. For them, it was just the north. And, it's, and so they actually are going to be able to tag on to the, to the Virginia Charter, and they get legal access to be able to come over and join what is taking place over there. However, if many of you know the story, there's a huge storm, and they cannot land uh, where they intended, so they're going to land at Plymouth. And this is going to start a chain of events that is going to change the course of our nation. And it's not just going to mean a holiday in late November. It is going to establish a different form of thinking and a different form of living on this soil. And it has all started with the persecution of those that want to live fully for Jesus. Isn't that an irony? Our country is forged out of that heritage. Not to be overlooked right now. So here's our quote that I started with. They are going to make a decision to go north. And Bradford is going to chronicle it this way. It was answered amongst everyone. This is the answer of the group. That all great and honorable actions are accompanied with great difficulties and must be enterprised and overcome with answerable courages. It was granted that the dangers were great, but not desperate. And the difficulties were many, but not invincible. Their ends were good and honorable. Their calling lawful and urgent. And therefore they might expect the blessing of God in their proceeding. So here's a question for all of us. Are you going to go south or north? Each one of us has this decision right now because there's a north and a south in our life right now. And that's what you see. You see Christians kowtowing and saying, I want the ease. What what did you tell me about South America again? The, The fruit just fell off the vine and it was like a perpetual springtime. Where's that? I want that. 
Where can I just like be a Christian and yet fit into the culture? Where is it that I can like give a thumbs up to all the political correctness and I can still be a Christian? Is there a land for that? Yeah, that's South America. In other words, there's a South right now and there's a North and it's staring us in the face and every single one of us is at Leiden Holland with a decision to make. Do we want to change the world or do we want to pacify and ingratiate our own cravings? What are you here for? You got one shot at this thing called life. The pilgrims come to the conclusion that they have a calling on their life and that they are supposed to shine a light in a dark place, that they are supposed to build something that will cause nations to see the light of Jesus. That is going to become what we know as the United States of America. And they're going to be a foundation stone in the process. They're going to sign a charter before they get off the Mayflower, which is going to become the Mayflower Compact is what it's called. It's going to be the foundation of representative government. It's going to be the foundation of our constitution of the United States. This one group which only has a hundred people in it, most of them who will die through the first hard winter are literally going to establish a foundation upon which we still stand, even though it's a little unstable at present. Our heritage is something quite special and it has come out of religious persecution. Isn't that just an incredible thought? Lawlessness, fear, and delusion have swept over this nation for centuries. And then the light of the gospel is going to come and meet it head on. And the light is going to win. And this nation is going to be founded in peace. And there is a liberty in this nation to pursue Jesus, to train people up, leaders, and then to send missionaries out And this nation is going to sponsor the sending forth of more light bearers than the world has ever seen. And yet if we trace it back to its roots, we're going to see a group of people, probably not altogether very different from us, that were in a similar situation, probably not altogether very different than ours, that had to make a decision to go south or to go north. Every single one of us has this decision on a personal level, on a family level. If you're a leader of a family, you recognize it's like, I just want peace for my family. (laughs) I I, I get it. Do I really want to be imprisoned and away from my family? Do I really want to die a martyr, you know, and leave my family behind? Not really. That isn't like on my checklist, like, okay, what would I like to do today? I'd like to die a martyr. Okay, there we go. I could, uh, maybe I could get that done before lunchtime. None of us wants to go out and suffer persecution. But all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Do not consider it strange, my brethren, when you face trials of many kinds. As if some strange thing is happening to you. We are being called to the north. To the more difficult territory. Where the survival rate is a lot lower than the South. Ironically, if they had gone South, it's almost predictable what would have happened. The Spanish would have felt threatened by the British being down there. 
And the Spanish would have taken them very quickly. If they felt any threat to their gold down there, whew, they're gone. And so as a result, it could sound good on paper, but when you enter into uh, agreement with the devil's territory, it never goes well. Just like you see in Pilgrim's Progress when the guy chooses the broad path. It doesn't go well. It looks really attractive at first, but technically the best way to go is to the north. Choose the difficult path, the narrow way. I recognize it's going to lead you straight to the hill of difficulty. And yet this is where great Christians grow strong. This is where we are proven. This is where we are tried. And this is where we shine brightly. We shine brighter in difficulty than we do in ease. So if your goal is to shine the light of Christ, hey, you need a little fire. Gold shines when it's put in the flame. And the same is true with us. You see, God desires to shine a light, and that's to the north, not to the south. So let's remember that. Let's finish with this scripture. Jesus Christ, Matthew seven thirteen through 14. Yes, I read this earlier, but it uh, deserves a repeat. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Few is not a number or or, or an amount I really like. But as I've oftentimes said, if I had a choice to be one of David's mighty, would I take it? But what if it meant I had to live in a cave with a rock for my pillow? Would I take it? So I could be one of David's, uh, he had hundreds of thousands of armed soldiers. But he only had, what was it, like 39 mighties? Well, that would be pretty attractive. I'd love to be one of the few. He also had three that were more mighty than the others. What would you be willing to give up to be one of those three? That's the same reasoning that we have as Christians. We have the opportunity to enter into the intimate work of Jesus Christ. Yes, few is not really an attractive term to any of us. But in a strange sense, it is, too. It's a motivator. All right? I know which way I'm supposed to go. But everyone else is going this way, Eric. I realize that. And I've been prepared for this. The world and even other Christians will gravitate towards that which is easy. That which looks more attractive. That which has the perpetual springtime. I am called to stay on this straight and narrow path. But it... Look at that mountain that's ahead of you, Eric. I recognize that. But what you don't see is that that leads to destruction. This leads to life. I believe it. So therefore, I'm headed off toward the north. Father, I pray that there will be a ratifying in each of our souls towards the north, towards the difficult. That we would not shy away, but that we would delight in your ways. That we would recognize that you are looking for foundation stones for this next season of history. Lord Jesus, you are looking for those that will give themselves to you with abandon and be spent for your glory. Lord, look no further than right here. May you find your ready participants in this room. Lord Jesus, may you stir the church of Jesus Christ around this world to rise up with their hands raised as well and say, select me. Lord, we love you and we submit to you with this humble request. 
that you would lead us down the straight and narrow path. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.